It's good to see everybody here this morning. Welcome to First Baptist Belton. Thank you for being here as a part of this special celebration of Andy's 30th anniversary as the pastor of First Baptist Belton. Got a hold of Andy's son, Danny, and I said, Danny, if there was someone that could come and preach Andy's 30th celebration service, who would it be? And I said, you aim as high as you can, or if, if it's me, then that's fine too. Um, <laughs> Thankfully, he did not say me. And, um, and so he talked with Sharon, and uh, the first person on their list was Dr. Jimmy Draper. And uh, like some of you may know what to do, I went Facebook stalking. And, um, and so I went and tried to find who he was and got a hold of him, and he responded immediately and accepted the invitation. So I want to introduce him um, and his wife, Carol Ann. Dr. Draper is married to Carol Ann of 62 years. They reside in Colleyville, Texas. They have three children, six grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. Dr. Draper has served as the president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources and has also been a pastor in Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Euless, Texas from 1975 to 1991. And before that, he was the associate pastor at First Baptist Church in Dallas. And this would be where he would meet Andy as Andy was working there as well, and they would meet in 1973. Dr. Draper performed the wedding vows of Andy and Sharon's uh, wedding ceremony, and they have remained friends ever since then. And so dear friend and family, um, and they enjoyed fellowship together and friendship. Along with pastoring, Dr. Draper has served as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, as a trustee of numerous institutions, including Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Baylor University, He's also served as the interim president of Criswell College and been highly involved in the Baptist General Convention of Texas. Dr. Draper has written numerous books. I got one this morning, so thank you very much. That's very kind of you. And traveled over 36 countries to preach the gospel and to train pastors and leaders. And so it's a joy to have Dr. Draper with us this morning. And to uh, and we're, we're looking forward to sitting under his proclamation of the word this morning. And thank you, Dr. Draper and Carol Ann, for coming and making this a special day for Andy. Wow. All the people said. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, choir, Brother Gary, Brother Matthew, choir and orchestra. Appreciate you folks. In many ways, you minister grace and it makes it easy for the preacher to preach. So thank you for your faithfulness over the years. And I'll try to remember you're here. I know you're not used to being up here all the time and turn around and talk to you. All right. Now, good. Good to see you all. Thank you for letting us be here. Caroline, I've been looking forward to this. This is a great day. 30 years. Wow. Do you know not 1% of Southern Baptist pastors get to celebrate a 30th anniversary? I mean, that's, that's pretty rare. So, Andy, you and Sheridan, it's good. Congratulations. <laughs> but also, do you realize it is their anniversary, but it's your anniversary. You put up with them for 30 years. <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, the great thing is it's obvious you love them. And so we, uh, we're grateful uh, for that. Uh, Brother Andy and Brother Dan is there behind him. Uh, we're the RA leaders and uh, coached our boys' basketball team for our oldest son. And they still talk about those days. And uh, you made a great impact, both of you 
You guys mean a lot to us, and we're just glad to be here. Thank you. The greatest thing you can do for your community is to love your pastor. You do that, it will show, people will know, and lives will be touched as they have been. Maybe I'm not supposed to do that. (laughs) Or maybe they're saying, it's time already, so I better get started here. All right, what I want to do this morning, Brother Andy made it very, he didn't know I was coming. He didn't know Caroline and I'd be here, but he said, whoever comes, tell them it's not about me. It's about the Lord. I want you to hear the gospel, and uh, we want people to praise the Lord. And that's what we're going to do. I want to give you a passage of Scripture that gives a picture of the gospel and a picture of the church. Because, you see, the gospel's never finished until the evangelized become evangelists, until those who have heard begin to share with those who... Was that a boo? (laughs) Too soon for that. All right. Anyway, turn to to John chapter 7 with me, please. John chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 37 through 39. You follow along, and by the way, I'll talk quick, and if you'll listen quick, maybe we'll get through at the same time. That would really be good if we could do that. So here's, here's the passage. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now that is a great passage of scripture. And that statement that Jesus made is a great statement. If anyone's thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. But by itself, it, it doesn't hit you too good. It just kind of is there. What is, well, we need to set the stage. The first thing in looking at the Bible is always consider the context. So the context of this verse of Scripture, these verses of Scripture, the first verse begins that he, Jesus went to Galilee, and the second verse said, the Jewish festival of booths. Or tabernacles was at hand. So we know that he was at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three great, there were many other feasts, but there were one of three great feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But the favorite Jewish feast, believe it or not, the favorite Jewish feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. Josephus said, the Jewish historian, it was the highest and happiest and holiest celebration of the Jews. And and if you knew anything about it at all, you would know that it is very much like a continuous celebration for a week. They went eight days celebrating, and it was like a carnival atmosphere. There were games and things for the children. There were activities all the way through the week. It was a, it was a feast of praise for the water that had come and the harvest that had just been gathered. It was also a acted out prayer for more water for the later harvest that was to come. It was a time of celebration in every way, and uh, it, it was just continuous action. Some people uh, uh, kind of believe that the Jews never slept for a week. I mean, it went on all night long, all day long. It was something special in the Jewish uh, 
temple, there was only a, uh, a place for the women over uh, to the side. They didn't worship with the men. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, they built sort of a grandstand. And the women got to sit in the grandstand looking right down into the temple proper. And uh, and they had 50-foot poles built around the perimeter of the temple. And, uh, and on top of them were lanterns with oil. And throughout the whole week, little Jewish priests would be scurrying up and down the poles, putting in more oil. So the lamps never went out for the entire week. It was a time of incredible celebration. And I don't have time to tell you much more about it. So I'll stop there to say there was one special, one special... Uh, process that took place the Feast of Tabernacles that that, get, that gives us the setting for this because there were two words in verse in those first verses that stood out to let me know there's something here that I wasn't seeing. He stood up and he cried out. And you say, well, what's significant about that? Well, Jewish rabbis never stood up. They always sat down. If I were a Jewish rabbi addressing you, I'd be, I'd be seated. Because Jewish rabbis always sat. That, that was their custom back then. Don't you remember the uh, Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6? Remember how it began? And when he had sat down, then he started preaching. So when, when the stood up thing was, that, that tells me that this is something really special. This is more than meets the eye. We need to fully understand the context. When could he have stood up to speak at a carnival? I mean, it was raucous. The noise was incredible. The celebration was jubilant. Everything was incredible. When would he had a chance to stand up and speak out? And then the word cried out. That's not the usual word for cry out. It only appears in the Gospel of John and only appears in three chapters. In the first chapter, John the Baptist is said to be crying out in the wilderness. This word is used there. It's used twice here in this seventh chapter. And the third, the third chapter is the eleventh chapter. If you'll remember, when Lazarus was in the grave, it said Jesus cried out. Word used there. I mean, it is an unusual word. It is a technicolor word. It is a word filled with excitement and energy and purpose and, and intrigue. It was something that was a, an incredible word. He cried out. So when could he have stood up and cried out where anybody could hear? Well, there's this ceremony. Every day, a Jewish priest would lead a procession of priests out of the temple area. Now, the people had been taught for this ceremony that they were to bring branches, that uh, they had built their booths, their tabernacles. They built little... Well, we're, we're in Texas, aren't we? They built little lean-tos. They, they give you the picture of it. They, Leviticus 23 sort of describes how they do it, but they were told to bring their branches. They were told to move out of their homes... Because God wanted to be, them to be reminded there was a time when they did not have any permanent dwelling. They were nomads. They were nomadic. They wandered around. And he wanted them to know. So they had to move out of their house for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they built these little booths, these little tabernacles. And they sprang up everywhere. In the streets, in the marketplace, on the rooftops. They were everywhere. And it was so important that every adult male was required to attend 
who lived within 20 miles of the feast of Jerusalem. And so it was a special time, and they, they took the branches, they fashioned their lean-tos, their little tabernacles, and then they were to bring a branch with them to this ceremony. So the people lined the, the streets all the way from the temple down to the Pool of Siloam. That priest would lead a procession of priests, all holding golden pitchers, and they would come through the water gate, out of the city of Jerusalem, down to the Pool of Siloam. They would dip down and get water, in the pool of Siloam, and then the procession would come back up the hill. As they came through the water gate, they would chant together, Isaiah 12, 3, With joy shall you drink water from the wells of salvation. And then they would sing the Hallel, Psalms 116 to 118. Every time they came to that phrase, it said, God is good, His faithful love endures forever. The people would raise their their branches, they'd shake them, and they'd shout. I mean, it was unbelievable. And then they would come into the temple area. Around the perimeter of the temple, there were trumpeters who were stationed, and they would blast triumphantly as the team came of priests came back into the temple area. There at the altar, there was a giant silver funnel. And the priests, one by one, would come, pour the water into that uh, into that funnel, and it'd splatter all over the rock of the altar. And the people would let out a roar, like like when your favorite team scores a touchdown in the stadium, and the people erupt with cheers because it, it is a, a joyous moment. That's the way it was: noisy, raucous, celebrating. That went on for seven days. On the eighth day, which was originally designed in the Old Testament to be a, uh, a solemn assembly, that was part of the Feast of Tabernacles by New, New Testament times. That's the day we're talking about. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, on that eighth day, they did that ceremony with two changes. Everything I described, they did out the Watergate, Pool of Siloam, Back through the water gate, Isaiah 12, 3, sing the Hallel, shake the branches, cheer. When they came to the altar, oh, I did leave one thing. They marched one time around the altar for seven days, but on the seventh, the eighth day, they marched seven times around it. I guess a reminder of the sevenfold uh, circuit of Jericho uh, when they walls came tumbling down. So they, they marched seven times around it. Then the priest, lead priest came and he raised the pitcher. And on the eighth day, there was no water in the pitcher. Instead of a roar, there was deathly silence. It was at that moment, Jesus stood up. And with a loud voice, he said, If anyone's thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. What an incredible moment that was. For in that simple, simple statement, he was giving us the context and the, uh, the substance of the gospel itself. He was making an, an, an unlimited provision available for the people. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Well, first of all, it's a universal offer. It says anyone. Anyone means anyone. Anyone anywhere. Anyone who comes to me, he can drink of the water and be satisfied. His thirst will be 
quenched. It was a universal offer. It was a, it was an unlimited, an unlimited provision because he did, he, he didn't put any restraint on it. He just described the, the need of the human heart in one word. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? You see, thirst is the most intense craving of the human body. Far greater than any other fulfillment, there is the need of the human body for water. Doctors tell us that everything good that happens in your body happens in water. Uh, I, I asked my, my... I've been on a diet for 52 years, and uh, <laughs> it's not working, but I'm hoping. But uh, I asked my doctor, I said, well, can, does diet coke... Is that, is that the same thing as water? Nope, said it doesn't count. Got to have water. Human body needs water. And uh, so he said, are you thirsty? He didn't limit it in any way. Whatever your need is. Of course, we all need forgiveness, right? Well, if you need forgiveness, Word of God says that, it, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful just to forgive us our sins. First John 1, 9. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is there. Do we need to be saved? Is salvation able to cleanse our hearts? Absolutely. For he said that uh, the uh, gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Do we need wisdom? Could he provide wisdom for us? Absolutely. James 1 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of me. And, and and I will give it to him generously. Won't take it back. I'll provide it. Wisdom. Do you need comfort? We all come to times where our hearts are troubled, and we need we need need some uh, peace in our hearts and mind. Well, Second Corinthians one says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us all of our afflictions, so that we can comfort someone else with the same comfort." That we were comforted with, you see that, that that's the way God works. And and, and whatever you need, could could He satisfy the desire for pleasure? We're living in a pleasure mad world, aren't we? Especially in America, we we want entertainment, we want recreation. Could God give you genuine pleasure? Absolutely. Psalm sixteen eleven says, "In Thy presence is fullness of joy, and at Thy right hand, at Your right hand." Or eternal pleasures. You see, whatever Jesus is making it so that whatever your need may be, He says, I can satisfy that need. Just try it out. Just tell Him what your trouble is. Tell Him what your problem is. And, and He'll say, I can, I can handle that. He can do that. That is, it's an unlimited provision that He's offering in this time. By the way, I get thirsty when I talk about this. Let's have a drink, okay? How was that? <laughs> oh, you you didn't taste it? Try again. Is that better? Oh, you say, preacher, you're fun in this now. No, I'm making a point. He said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You, that's the demands of it. You see, God doesn't just do things for us uh, just to be doing. Uh, he, he gives us what we need. So he says, if you're thirsty, you need water. So you come to me and drink. You see, that's how we get saved. 
We get saved and we find our life in Christ and our sins forgiven and, and, and our soul satisfied and everything that is so precious to us in this life. We get, we get those things because we come and drink the water that Jesus offers. But you have to come yourself. You see, the truth is nobody can drink for you. Just as I couldn't drink water and satisfy your thirst, nobody can be saved for you. Nobody can be comforted for you. Nobody can be forgiven for you. You have to do it yourself. It, it, it involves your personal commitment. Come and drink. You have to do it yourself. Oh, you have the capacity to do that, and nobody can keep you from doing that. You can do that. You have the capacity to respond, and I love John because he is so simple. You want to say, well, how do you drink this water Jesus offers? Well, he makes it very clear. He says, the one who believes. You drink the water of life, and you drink the water that Jesus offers for our lives by believing, by faith. The word believe is just a verb form of the noun faith. You faithed it, you, you believed it, you received it. That's how you got the gospel, how you got saved. That's how you will get saved. It's how you will get the blessings of God as you come to Him for yourself and you drink. You can do it, and nobody can keep you from doing it. It is your choice. So He makes this unlimited provision, but it has two demands. You have to come and drink. That's the provision. And that's the, that's the message of the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. There, there's no Texas gospel. There's no American gospel. It's a universal gospel. It's for everybody. And God intended for everybody to know the truth of the gospel and be part of His redemptive plans. The word nations appears over 800 times in Scripture. Shouldn't surprise us that we come to the end of the, end of the book. And he describes a scene when people of all nations, all languages, all tribes are rallied around the throne, praising our holy God. Praise God for that. It, it is, a, it is a, a universal offer when the world will come to the feet of God. Oh, by the way, Zechariah says in the end of his prophecy... That at the end of time, all the nations will observe the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, this is a special time. And, and, and that is the gospel. It is an invitation to you and to me to respond, to believe God, to trust God. But connected to that, there is an incredible promise. And this is where you come in. Because he, he gave a promise to the church. We get saved one by one. Only one person can, can do it at a time. Uh, we, uh, we have to do it ourselves. Nobody keep us from doing it, all of that. But the promise is to the church because he says, the ones who believe out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then he, John explains, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. You see, when we get saved, God puts the Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit cannot be contained within us. We can't keep Him. He's going to work His way out. That's what the church is all about. 
We're, we're here to be distributors of the water of life. We, it's not enough just to be saved, not enough just to, re, to claim the promises of Christ as, as a believer and become a, a Christian and be a Christ follower. But once you've done that, uh, God wants His love to flow through you. And so those of us who drink the water of life, God didn't give that to us just for us to enjoy. He didn't give that to us just so we would have a certain experience, a certain delight. He gave it to us so we could share it with others. In other words, God wants us who have drunk the water of life to be distributors of that water. That's what the church is. The church is a distributor of the water that is being offered through Jesus Christ. An incredible, an incredible uh, Provision and promise that he makes, and it's all seen for us right here. Now, let me, you know, I do have bad news for you. There is no clock in this building. <laughs> so, barring some catastrophe, I'm not here till I get through. So I'll do my best to be brief. But let me, let me just, let me bring it down just in very practical terms for you. In the Holy Land today, in the land of Israel, there are two basic bodies of water. There's the Sea of Galilee and there's the Dead Sea. Connecting those two is the River Jordan. Now, there's a big difference between those two. The Sea of Galilee is alive. It furnishes uh, every nourishment the plants all over Israel need. You go to Israel today and it's blooming like a garden. It's because of water from the Sea of Galilee. That's not a big sea. It's only 13 miles wide, 7 miles uh, across, and it's only 147 feet deep. Oh, and it's also uh, below sea level, uh, just like the Dead Sea is. But it teems with life. They, they, they piped water out of, the, out of the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Negev in the south of Israel. And everywhere the water is shipped, things come alive. It's a, it's a bountiful water, beautiful lake. If you've ever been to Israel, there's nothing to compare to that moment. You top that hill as you come north out of Jerusalem, and there's the Sea of Galilee. Incredible. Lebanon nestles in the background here, Syria here. Jordan over here, it's an incredible sight, and uh, it, it is a wonderful life-giving water. Out of the end of the southeast end of the Sea of Galilee, the river flows, Jordan River. If you're on a crow's back, it's about 75 miles. If you're in a canoe, it's about 200. You get down, it flows into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, well, it's dead. I mean, that, that's the truth. Well, there may be some microscopic uh, amoeba that, that dwells there, but everything's dead. Do you know the mineral content is so thick in the, in the Dead Sea that you could read the Waco Tribune or whatever paper you might read sitting up, holding it in the, in the Dead Sea, and you wouldn't get it wet? You can't sink. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's dead. Nothing lives there. It's so thick with mineral content. But now, here's, here's the kicker. The same water is in both the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Same water. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, you see, there are three rivers that flow from the northwest down out of Lebanon into the Sea of Galilee, and the snow melts off of the mountains, and it comes down. 
and it received, the, the Sea of Galilee receives water, and it gives water. It receives up at the northwest and out of the, uh, out of the uh, uh, northeast. It, uh, southeast, it flows the Jordan River. So it receives and it gives. It receives and it gives and it lives. The water comes down and goes to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea receives and receives and never gives and it dies. Folks, there's a picture there for us. You want to be a victorious Christian? Then you got to give your faith away. Can't keep it to yourself. Can't pretend it doesn't, uh, it won't nurture somebody else. That's why the church is left here. Imagine Jesus trusted the gospel to 12 very ordinary men. And you say, why in the world did he give the Great Commission there? And of course, he included all of us in that. But why, how, why did he give that to 12 men who were less than accountable? And in fact, they entered into the Last Supper when they were going to have the tabernacle, the Feast of Passover and then institute the Lord's Supper. Scripture says they were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, just think about that. 12 men from nowhere who had done nothing arguing about who the greatest. It shows you how strong the how strong human pride is and self-image. Of course, there's a reason for that. I can't imagine the world without me. <laughs> and you can't imagine it without you because it, we are the center of our world. And so I guess it, it's, it's something that we should expect. But here they're arguing, and, and they'd also, back in, in chapter 9 of Luke, they, 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 did, they seemed to enjoy doing this. They didn't have any NFL or, or, or Big 12 or, or any, any, any activity. So they're, 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 I guess their entertainment was arguing about who was the greatest. Remember, Jesus said it's not going to be like it is in the world with you kings and governors. They lorded over everybody. You're not going to do that. He just about to wash their feet and uh, show them that he said, I am among you as one who serves. Luke uh, chapter 22. And the word he chose for serve is the word we get deacon from. Sometimes people ask me, what's the deacon's job description? It's in the word. The word deacon refers to someone who's a servant who's willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. It doesn't speak of any personal authority, any, any, any personal blessing. It just means he's there to do whatever needs to be done. That's what deacons are for. And Jesus said, that's what I'm for. Oh, by the way, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 said, when he asked the, the rhetorical question, of who is, uh, what is Apollos and what is Paul? He answered his own question. He said, we're servants, and he picked the same word, diakonos. We're just here to do whatever is necessary. Uh, those were the men that he gave it to, and he did it because he knew in the final analysis they'd get the job done. Now it's passed down to us. We've received. We've received that gospel. Which are we going to be? Are we going to be a Sea of Galilee or a Dead Sea? If you're a Dead Sea, you're going to always be irritated, always unhappy, Always critical, always wanting to blame somebody for whatever it is that's upsetting you. If you're a Sea of Galilee, you're unselfishly, continuously giving of that which God has entrusted to you. You are a steward of your life, your sorrows, your pleasures, 
every moment of your life because you've received the gift of life. You're now accountable to share that gift with everybody else. That's what the church is all about. Now, what does that mean? It means very simply that you're going to make a choice in your life. Are you going to be a Sea of Galilee or a Dead Sea? It's a real choice. Nobody can make it for you. You have to make that for yourself, too. Let me just give you quickly how Carol Ann and I, we've been together now for over 62 years. Uh, we met when I was going into my junior year at Baylor, and uh, she was going into her senior in high school. So we courted by mail. Not the best arrangement, but it worked. I went down when I could. I was still preaching some on the weekends and went down there about uh, about 200 miles down to Lake Jackson, Texas, right on the coast by Freeport. And uh, we met on August the 20th. I bought her ring Thanksgiving, gave it to her Christmas, and we married six weeks after she graduated from high school. I was not about to let her come to Baylor single. So we got married. Well, her mother and dad, thinking, that, seeing that we were falling in love by mail, thought it would be a good idea for us to spend some time together. So they brought, one weekend, they brought her to Waco. And they had friends there, and they stayed with the friends. Caroline stayed with, uh, in the dormitory, I guess it was. And uh, so we could be together over the weekend. During that weekend, we had, we, we had, a, we had an encounter with God listening to records. Yeah, kids, we used to listen. To, by the way, records are little round things with, with holes in the middle. Yeah, they're, they're making a comeback. But uh, anyway, we, just like you all do, we listen to music, recorded music. And we were listening to one of our favorite singers, Frank Sinatra. Imagine having an encounter with God listening to Frank Sinatra. But he had a song called You Are My Everything. And, and we listened to that song, and we started talking, and we realized that that's kind of what we had done with each other. And we kind of pushed God aside a little bit, and we'd really wrapped our lives up in each other. And uh, I, I was thinking, you know, if something happens to Caroline, what will I do? She was thinking, she was a mission volunteer. She, you know, she, what, what will I do if something happens to Jimmy? So we turned the record player off. And we got on our knees in a little white frame house out near Woodway, and we uh, prayed a prayer, something like this. I prayed, Lord, if something happens to Carol Ann, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. She said, Lord, if something happens to Jimmy, I'm going to keep serving you. And then together we prayed, Lord, our answer is yes. For today, for now, and for the rest of our lives. Our answer is yes. We'll do whatever you call us to do, whatever you tell us to do. We won't argue with you. We won't debate with you. We won't negotiate with you. All you have to do is show us what you want us to do. And we're telling you today that our answer is yes. I'd like to tell you that we never made any mistakes. Not true. I go back and look at some of the sermons I preached, Andy, when I was my first church or two or three or four. <laughs> and I think, oh, my dear God, what 
worst, how in the world these people put up with this? Uh, we made a lot of mistakes, but I don't think we ever made a mistake about where we served, because every place we served, we, we served with an overwhelming sense of this is what God wants us to do. And, and remember, we'd already told God, our answer is yes. We're not going to argue about it. Now, I could give you some illustrations. Uh, we, we went from San Antonio, Texas to Kansas City, Missouri, and the, and the people didn't love each other, let alone us, when we got up there. We thought God had forsaken us and thrown us away. We had no sense of attractiveness to that church except that God told us to go. And when I went to the Sunday school board, I was 55 years old. Never had any business in my life, never had any economics, never had any math. Yet all of a sudden, I'm president of a $182 million corporation. And the president before me had been telling the employees that it was a dying organization. And I'm 55, no business experience, other than pastoring Baptist churches. And really, if you pastor Baptist church, you can do about anything. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, you have all kinds of challenges. But uh, we had an overwhelming sense that this is what God wanted us to do. So we went, had 15 wonderful years at what is now Lifeway. Grew from 180 million to nearly half a billion dollars a year. And, uh, and uh, it, it, it was a wonderful experience. But there was no reason for us to do that, humanly speaking, except that God told us to do it. And we'd already told God, you just tell us and we'll do it. Our answer is yes. You know what I'm asking you today? I don't know what God has in store for you. So many times people say, you know, I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do. Well, let me give you number one principle of making decisions. Doubt never means yes. If you have doubt about something, don't do it. It doesn't necessarily mean no, but it may mean wait a while. could mean no. Uh, don't, don't ever act with doubt. What I'm asking you to do, would you be willing today in celebration of this wonderful partnership between you and your pastor and his wife and family, would you be willing to say, Lord, from today on, my answer is yes. Whatever that means. Whatever you want me to do. I won't argue with you. I won't negotiate. won't debate. I'll just do it. Do that and you'll be a sea of Galilee. If you don't do that, you're going to struggle in your faith and likely end up a dead sea. Your choice. My invitation to you is would you say yes to Christ today? For some of you, that may mean making profession of faith in Christ. You've heard the gospel. You know about it. You, you have, uh, you have uh, been in this, this fellowship perhaps for a while, or, or you have been in a Bible study, and you know that, uh, uh, what, how, how it is to be saved, what it means to be lost, and you need to be saved. It would be a time for you to say, I want to say yes to Christ. I want to receive Christ as my Savior today. Nobody can do that for you. Doesn't matter how godly your parents were, your nephews or your brothers or sisters, doesn't matter what anybody else, you have to make that decision yourself. Just say yes to him. Yes, I want to receive him as my Savior. Maybe it's to, to unite with this church. You know, babies are born into families and spiritual babies are born into families too. That's what the church is. It's a spiritual family. And, and what a great fellowship uh, to be in. First Baptist Church, Belton, Texas, great fellowship. 
and, and obviously a healthy church and a place where you can grow in your faith and you can be enriched in your life and you can mature in all the things that God would have you to do. Maybe today would be the day that you say, yes, I want to be part of this fellowship. You'll have an opportunity to do that. Or maybe, maybe it's not either of those things, but you just, in your relationship with God, maybe you struggled, maybe you just haven't kind of known where to turn sometimes. Here's what you can do. Lord, my answer is yes. Whatever that means. For today, for the rest of my life, my answer is yes. If you'll do that, God will meet you there. And he'll bless your life. Don't argue with him. Don't debate with him. Don't negotiate with him. You're a unique individual. Psalm 139 said, God knew you before you were ever born. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He has a strategy and a plan for your life. And your only hope for making it through life with joy and happiness is simply say yes to whatever God has in store for you. Whatever it is, he'll be there. And I promise you this, he'll walk every step of the journey with you if you'll say yes. Would you bow your heads with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed, just for a moment. We want to tarry just a moment longer here. But I'm asking you now, to say yes to whatever God has put in your heart. Father, I pray that you'll make clear in each of our hearts what, what you want us to do. But Lord, more than that, even if we're not sure, Lord, we know we can trust you, and we know that, uh, that, that you, will, you will walk with us on this journey, and so we just want to say yes to you. Lord, we want to do your will. We want to be in your, in your purpose for our life purpose for which you created us. Lord, we want to say a yes to you so that we can join you in every way on the journey of this life. So help us in this moment to affirm our commitment to whatever you want us to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We stand together. Brother Gary, Brother Matthew will lead us. Brother Matt's here at the front. We'll sing just a stanza or two. The invitation's for you. If you just slip into an aisle, down the steps here. I guess you can get down here or down however you got up there. Just come down the same way. This is the time as we sing. Would you come? <laughs>